This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Hi and welcome to Radio Therapy. My goodness, it is very, very loud in here. Um, today on the show, we uh, will be talking all about memory, memory and forgetting. Now, the capacity to remember is a quintessential human trait and uh, the nostalgic pull of the past has a gravity that the present can never assume. But what about forgetting? Does losing a memory serve a purpose? Is it adaptive? We'll be speaking with two seasoned researchers about these opposite poles on the memory continuum. First up, we'll be chatting with Dr. Ji Huan Kim, who is the head of developmental psychobiology uh, at uh, the Flora Institute here in Melbourne. Ji has a whole bunch of career accolades and media appearances, but we can tell that appearing on radiotherapy is probably going to be the highlight of her career to date, I reckon. She's uh, very excited about appearing on our show. Her research looks at the role of memory and forgetting in the genesis of anxiety and other disorders. It really is quite paradigm-breaking, and uh, she's a fascinating speaker that you won't want to miss. Sitting next to G is Associate Professor Michael Gonzalez. Now, he's a senior neurologist, parenthetically, a brain peaker at uh, the Royal Melbourne... Uh, uh, wrong? No, no, he's not a brain Neuro- peaker. Neuropathologist. What did I say? Neuropathologist. You said neurologist. Neurologist. Did I say neurologist? <laughs> mm. My it's goodness. It's got more letters in the name. <laughs> neuropathologist. Should, he's a neuropathologist. I'm so sorry. Which It's a brain peaker. Somebody looks at brain tissue, Yeah. Pathologist. Pathologist. Oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> now, um, Michael spent a couple of years in San Francisco working on his tan and various research papers, and then he arrived back in Melbourne in the late 1980s to establish himself as the go-to man uh, for diagnosing complex brain diseases. He's a neuropathologist. His interests run the gamut of neurological disorders, but today he's going to focus on one, Alzheimer's disease and various dementias. Now... Uh, Alzheimer's and dementias, they're primarily primarily known for their terrible effects on memory and thinking. And he'll be telling us about the latest research. And I'll be quizzing him and my comrade Nurse EpiPen on what we can do to prevent it. And as I mentioned in the studio is Nurse EpiPen, who when she is not heading up the Victorian spleen... No, I I can't say that. Okay. Spleen Australia. Oh, Spleen Australia registered? Yes. God, it's grown, it's huge. grown in the last week. Well, and, and it can be called Spleen Australia. We haven't got all the states on board, but everybody can access our documents, our medical recommendations and advice via our website. So this is why I should do research before I do my intros. So she's the head of Spleen Australia. She also co-produces our show, so thank you so much, Happy Ben. Um, whatever you do, why don't you just stay listening to the radio for the next hour or to your podcast because we met a groupie today in the Street, who uh, said that she actually she listens. wanted your autograph. <laughs> it's the first time it's happened in 25 years, let me tell you. Um, so, you are listening to Radiotherapy. It's going to be a great hour. Welcome, Nurse EpiPen. Good morning. G, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. It is a career highlight. So, yes, it is. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> Better than TEDx. <laughs> and, Michael, thank you so much for coming on, too. Thank you, Mel. Lots of stuff to talk about. Tell us some ideas about dementia, tell us the epidemiology EpiPen, because you are an epidemiologist oh. and you're going to tell us how many people in Australia suffer from 
uh, dementia and uh, the kind of different types and age groups of people that suffer from dementia? Sure. So I don't want to piggyback too much onto Professor Gonzalez's talk, yes. but I'll just give you some background. So de- dementia is an umbrella term for a syndrome associated with nearly 100 different diseases. Mm-hmm. The most common... 100? Yeah, that's what it says on the Alzheimer's website. <laughs> so I've got this information from there. Dinkum, okay. It's probably different sort of memory brain um, disorders with old age dementia, all those sorts of... It's It encompasses all of those. But we're going to focus really oh, on the Alzheimer's. main ones. Oh, okay. So Alzheimer's mm. is 50 to 75% of this group. Right. Uh, vascular dementia is 20 to 30%. Frontotemporal dementia is 5 to 10% and dementia with Lewy bodies, which I'm hoping Professor Gonzalez might mention, is 5%. I have a particular interest in this one because my aunt has it mm. and she's in the UK and she's, had, she's um, 88 and she's had it for about six months and mm. she's being fed by a spoon and mm. it's not very well. So I'd be interested to hear what you know, what goes on for her. Um, but really, dementia is related to the impairment of brain functions, including language, memory, mm. perception, personality and cognitive skills. So cognitive means thinking, that is the ability to have like logical type thoughts in a row. Yeah? That's right, yeah. So dementia is more common in that people aged over 65, although there's a younger onset mm-hmm. dementia, which I'm sure we'll talk about today. But uh, interesting, I after given that there are so many people with dementia, I'll give you some statistics. Mm. Dementia is not a normal part of ageing. So it is a medical complication of ageing. So often people will say, oh, um, you know, I'm losing my memory because I'm getting old. But that isn't a normal part of getting older is to lose your memory. Uh, yeah? I think losing your memory when you get a bit older is a normal path, but getting a full diagnosis of dementia isn't. Mm-hmm. So I'm sure the experts will talk about that. But let me just give you some figures. So these are all from the um, Alzheimer's Australia National website, which is called vicfightdementia.org.au. And these figures are from February this year. So they've estimated that there are over 400,000 people in Australia with dementia, smidgy, smidgy greater numbers in women. So 55% are women, 45% are male. They've estimated that in Australia, it's sort of one in 10 people over 60. So that's about over 65. That's about 10% have dementia. Mm -hmm. And three in 10 over 85 have dementia. These are 2015 figures even though this is the website updated in 2017. So they've estimated in 2025, so in eight years, the number of people with dementia is expected to increase to over 500,000 people. And without a medical breakthrough, the number of people with dementia is expected to reach just over a million by 2056. As the population ages. As the population ages, yep. So, And they're saying 244 people in Australia per day are joining the population with dementia. And this is staggering because I did look this one up um, along because I checked their information on the website. Dementia is the second leading cause of death. In the elderly? In Australia, across all age groups. What? So we've got so we've got heart disease is the number one. Mm. Yeah. Then we've got dementia, and then we've got um, uh, cerebrovascular accidents, and cancers and stuff, strokes, and stuff. strokes yeah. and stuff. They mm. they come in under the. No, under cancer that. is actually surprisingly low. <laughs> Thank you, G. Mm. 
Because Rob's mouth's looking at me as if he can't believe my figures. No, no, I, I don't ever doubt you. <laughs> but would would um would that not be that a comorbid diagnosis at death, outside um, um dementia? So like you know you you pass away from pneumonia or uh, a cerebrovascular disease, but you've got do, the, do those dementia? figures mean that uh, dementia is regarded as the cause of death and is put on the death certificate as the cause of death, or? Does the has the patient died of some cardiovascular or, or other cerebrovascular mm. disease and happens to have dementia at the same time? Yeah, that's a very good question. I can't answer that, but this was what I looked up on the Australian Statistics um, Health Information site as to mm-hmm. what the order of. So um, we, give, we give you a grilling when you come on. Thank you, <laughs> and I can back it up because uh, I did check. I, I think it's interesting how those st- statistics might have been collected because if a death certificate is is completed correctly. You know, the, the the primary cause of death might have been heart attack, but under section three or four on the death certificate, someone may have written dementia or even written Alzheimer's disease. Mm. So you have to be careful how those statistics are collected. Mm. I, I'm sure it's embedded in the rest of the information. But um, <coughs> so, but fifty percent of people in permanent aged care have mm. dementia. Sure. So it would make so sense. This is a- Huge issue is what you're saying. It's absolutely yeah, phenomenal, yeah. and uh, and I've got some figures for costs. So um, in Australia, um, the inter- by 2025, the cost of dementia is predicted to increase to 18.7 billion dollars per annum. Mm. So it's and 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 the problem is caring for these people. Mm. So as the as the aged. Mm. People as people age, um, the carers. Uh, there's 24 hour care. They're going to aged care facilities, um, and it's it's a colossal burden. It certainly is. Now, the wonder of radio means that whilst uh, you and I were having a chat, uh, the audience doesn't know that I was actually on <laughs> the internet looking up is forgetting a normal part of ageing. And indeed, at the National Institute of Health, they say, yeah, mild forgetfulness is a normal part of ageing. It doesn't mean you've got dementia when it becomes quite mm. significant. Yeah. So not to scare people. Yeah, thank you. What are some... Now, now you were telling me in the green room um, that there are some things that we can do which can actually stave off uh, dementia. And I love some of these things, particularly the ones starting with D. I've got two Ds. Oh. Two Ds, dogs... I love dogs. And me too. <laughs> and dancing. Oh, yeah. So one of the um, things about dancing is that it has to be a particular type of dancing. So in 2003... <laughs> a particular yeah, type? Well, Let just, me have a guess. Let me guess. Uh, rap. Well, no, it just <laughs> says dancing dramatically. What does that mean? <laughs> <laughs> well, you have to do more than just wiggle your hips. Oh, and just it has to be extra fabulous. Extra fabulous. <laughs> like a salsa or something. Is that, that assisted by the loss of inhibition? Well, possibly. <laughs> hmm. So it's the New England Journal of Medicine in 2003. So let's just um, command bold, underline that. That's probably a the highest rated uh, yep. journal. journal. In, yep. Yep, peer-reviewed, peer so that means it's reviewed by some serious uh, medical academics, yeah. and academics, yep. So it's it says that it had to be um, dr- dancing dramatically, so you had to make split-second decisions mm. because it challenged your inter- intelligence and it, it, it challenged your cognitive behaviour so that the way that you had to dance was challenging and unpredictable and that was better than uh, sitting at home doing crosswords and things like that. So, so that's, that's thought to be preventative for it, Well, dementia. it's support to help. It's I don't think it necessarily it didn't say prevent. Right. <laughs> In fact, my reading says that you can't prevent dementia. 
No. I mean, yeah, your lifestyle stuff, like, you know, of course, you know, like, um, oh, I you know, think healthy diet, exercise. Delay. Delay. Rather than prevent. <laughs> but if you've got cerebrovascular disease, if cerebrovascular disease contributes to um, dementia, like it's, you know, then anything that which lowers your risk of cerebrovascular disease is going to lower your risk of dementia. So if you don't smoke, if you get low blood pressure, low That's weight. true. Um, it depends on types of dementia. My understanding is that something like Alzheimer's is pretty hard to prevent, but may be able to delay. Well, I think that, that's the point that a lot of the recent papers talking about new treatments and research into new treatments, they all emphasise that it's most it, the, the most important aspect of this, if they're going to be successful, is to be able to diagnose Alzheimer's disease in particular clinically before the pathology becomes mm, very well very established early. because once the pathology is very well established, like you've got lots of plaques through mm, the brain, mm. certainly the, 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 the most recent treatments um, won't work. Right, so you've got to get treatment early and diagnose early, it early. early. Gotcha. Yeah. So dancing? dancing. So my, wife, my wife's going to love this. She'll be onto this in two okay, seconds. Okay, and then the warm, fuzzy, furry things at home, dogs. So it was a very interesting... I really liked researching this. <laughs> so um, it was an, in Israel where mm-hmm. a guy called Golan Shmeshesh, yeah. hope I pronounced that right, is a social worker and his partner was a dog trainer. Mm. And um, together they um, instituted a program but they only used smooth-coated collies. <laughs> Particular penchants. Is that a dog cyst? (laughs) (laughs) So they must have been training those dogs. And they've also got another one. So that's in Israel. And in Scotland, they've also done a similar program. What do they do? So what you do is the dogs are trained. So these people have dementia now. Mm. So they're trained to walk with the person. And they're not on a harness. They've got a um, six-metre lead. And they walk in front of the person. That's a long lead. And uh, Sorry, six-foot lead. Okay. Yeah, that's (laughs) You might lose. Yeah, anyway. And they walk. And and the dementia (laughs) service dog, that's what they're called, is is his his or her job is to when they hear the word home, they take that person home. Now, as you can imagine, sometimes the person, the patient, might forget to say home. So and if they get lost, there's an electric electronic GPS on the dog and that will um, then the relative or the mm, carer will, can, can find them and go out and get them. That's very practical. And mm. Very practical. And the GPS also emits an, a recognisable <coughs> tone and the dog picks up the tone and then knows that, hang on, I better take this person oh, home. So they all escort them home. And if all goes pear-shaped mm. and the dog isn't responding, what they do is the dog has been trained to stay with the person. Mm. So, And then they'll come out and look for them where the last ping was. So these lovely dogs will sit with them and, re- and reassure them and people will come and look for them. So it's not just about re- returning the person home. It's also about, you know, the whole aspect of having... A dog that gives you unconditional love and <laughs> that, you know, cuddles. Clearly dog lover. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, haven't there been studies, I mean, I can't remember, years ago, there were studies in old age homes with pets mm. and, you know, how how much more active the um, the residents were and uh, how much uh, enjoyment they got from it and how it enlivened them seeing this. In fact, when I used to work in a, in a rehab facility, an old age rehab facility, that we used to have this Labrador that used to come around and everybody got, including the staff, <laughs> got so excited, you yeah. know. And such a simple yeah. thing to do. Yeah. And I've got yeah. one last, last point. Yes. Um, that if, if the person with dementia wanders out of the home and gets 
goes off on a walk and yep. hasn't checked out or told anybody mm. that they're going, they can also send the dog out to find them, that they will, they'll follow the scent of that person. Oh, that is just fantastic. Lassie, eat your heart out. <laughs> that is fantastic stuff. Thank you so much, uh, EpiPen, for um, bringing us some ideas about dementia. And I've just got one yeah. last thing, which is close to my heart. Yeah, sure. that, that, that um, The Australian government has given an extra $60 million towards mm-hmm. uh, dementia research. And, sorry, $200 million towards dementia research, and they are setting up a registry. Mm-hmm. So in the, there are about 30 registries for dementia around the world. What actually is a registry? So a registry is um, a database yep. where you, a patient or a, somebody can register a patient or you can register yourself, depending on the rules of the registry. And um, you can monitor the people on there. That, so the people that register can participate in research. Mm-hmm. They can um, contribute towards the policies for the care mm-hmm. of these people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They can um, monitor the epidemiology of dementia. So the, how common it is, what happens to it, the prognosis, that sort of stuff. That's right. right. And they can, and it, so I looked up the UK one yeah. and that's fantastic and they want people of all ages and health status to register with dementia, not with dementia and, uh, and tick a box which type of research they'd be interested in. Okay. Joining and so, how do people get in contact with this? Well, this here? one hasn't started yet. Right. The one in Australia, it's embryonic, so it takes about a year to two years to set up. And so, it, stay tuned type of stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Now, wasn't there a, a number people can call if they're interested about dementia or <laughs> got questions about dementia? Absolutely. Yeah? I'm glad you mentioned that. So, so, so first up. <laughs> If you are concerned, if this raises any issues, there's your GP. Um, but there is some great information on the Dementia Research website and also vicfightdementia.org.au. Um, and the number to ring if you want some extra information is one eight hundred one hundred five hundred. 500 Fantastic stuff. Thank you so much, Nurse EpiPen. Coming up is uh, Dr G, who will be telling us about memory and forgetting. I'm really, really, really looking forward to this segment. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR in Melbourne, Australia. In the studio, we have Dr. Malpractice, Nurse EpiPen, Dr. Ji Hun Kim, and Professor Michael Gonzalez. I love that name, Gonzalez. 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 Are you, are you, is that somewhere f- Spanish? Well, for many years, we thought uh, our heritage was Spanish, but uh, my cousin has recently investigated our family tree and we turned out to be Chilean. Chilean? Oh. Well, that's equally as impressive. Um, derived from a Chilean circus. Circus? Circus. Mm. Oh, circus. circus. Mm. What, 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 what does that mean? Is Chilean circus more special than other circus? <laughs> that's like circus, that's circus, circus Chile. Like... This one was because it had uh, Gonzalez as the trapeze act, apparently. Oh, wow. Mm. No Are you coordinated yourself? You look coordinated. I have photos to prove it. Yeah, <laughs> you look pretty coordinated. Are you coordinated? <laughs> Professor Gonzalez, are you coordinated? I am. Yeah. J- juggle for us. Maybe we'll get you to juggle after the show. <laughs> now, G, tell us about yourself. How, what do you do when you get up in the morning? Um, oh, well, first thing I do is um, eat breakfast. Yeah. <laughs> this we're, is going to be a lot to but, um, but what makes me get up in the morning is a different question. Yeah. And I think um, I love my job. I examine anxiety and addiction, especially um, early in life. And uh, these orders are particularly what we call developmental. So they emerge very early in childhood or in adolescence. Mm-hmm. And I use both animals and humans to really look at 
um, you know, the biology of it, what happens to the brain when you're anxious or when you are afraid of something and when you forget that. Mm. Yeah, mm. so that's what I study. <laughs> I mean, we'll get to what you actually do, but how, how did you get into this? I mean, because I, I think of careers, <laughs> as, there's a couple of ways of getting into careers. One is like you have this burning passion since you're <laughs> two years old yeah. to become like, I don't know, an orthopedic <laughs> surgeon. The other one is you kind of meet different people and mm. they're interesting and what their research is interesting and you kind of fall in with them. Yeah. I was extremely lucky to find something I really love early in my mm. life. Um, so I was always interested in mental health and I initially wanted to be become a psychiatrist Mm -hmm. like any good immigrant Asian (laughs) kid should (laughs) Um, but then as I was studying for medicine um, and I was doing Bachelor of Psychology I really fell in Mm -hmm. love with psychology everything Mm -hmm. about it and how rigorous how paranoid we were of not being taken seriously Mm -hmm. that how rigorously we controlled everything and statistically analyze everything and for me it felt like a real science Mm -hmm. not just observational Mm -hmm. and that you could manipulate people people's behavior and one of the like lowest hanging fruits of um, you know helping people can be understanding where they come from mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. example drug on um, on war has failed mm-hmm. because people try to um, reduce supply but without reducing demand mm-hmm. what that what happens then is the supply itself becomes very expensive and mm-hmm. extremely valuable mm-hmm. and it becomes worse mm-hmm. um, because it can be looked as like a sign of, I don't know, glamour or whatever. So, um, yeah, so I decided to not to do medicine mm-hmm. <laughs> and then um, I did a PhD in psychology mm-hmm. and, um, and the work I fell in love with during psychology had a lot to do with my amazing lecturer um, Mm. who ended up supervising my honours and PhD. His name is um, Professor Rick Richardson. Mm. And he, he, really liked looking at memory with a you know early life perspective mm-hmm. and also there's really not ma- not that many of us in the world doing it that way and in a way so National Institute of Health has actually from America which mm-hmm. is one of the biggest funding bodies for um, medical research has actually released a statement a few years ago saying the reason that we haven't really solved mental health issues and haven't really come up with any new treatments in the last 30-40 years is really because we are neglecting the fact that most of our mental disorders emerge mm-hmm. early in mm-hmm. life and mm-hmm. we need to understand why. <laughs> Fantastic stuff. So you're, you, you specifically are looking at memory, not in older age, but in a younger cohort. Yes. Right. I do have an older age study, actually. Yeah. We do. Um, there are a lot of similarities sure. how we start off. So, like, the last thing to emerge can be the first thing to go um, as we age. Yeah. But most of my studies do focus on the early life. So, yeah. tell us about some of your research. What are you doing? Um, so, for example, one of the – we can forget in many ways. And, you know, one we say, like, the biology of um, how we form memories where the neurons have different proteins and stuff as a consequence of experience can actually decrease. So that was one of the first theories of forgetting where we say there's a trace decay of the trace of the memory and Mm -hmm. it's irretrievable for the rest of your life. But it turned out that most of forgetting is really what we call a retrieval failure. So it can be there somewhere in the brain, but it just cannot be retrieved. Um, So so it's kind of stored on your hard disk, but you can't get access to that hard disk, right? Yeah. So so you just need the right triggers or right reminders. And I guess the more... um, emotional the original experience was and more attentive you were the more likely that you'll remember those things um and and 
one of the things we study the most is how we treat, um, you know, anxiety disorders mm-hmm. or even addiction. Is the reason that those things keep coming back, and that's not a failure. And I really want people to know that relapse is actually just really part of life. Sometimes mm-hmm. we have good days and bad mm-hmm. days. Yeah. And even myself, I want to be a good supervisor to my mm-hmm. patient students. Yeah. But when I'm not feeling well, sometimes I can snap. And um, so, you know, when you do when you do have a full blown anxiety disorder and you do get treated but it returns you can't blame yourself or even the clinical Mm. psychologist Mm. um our brain is hardwired to remember very emotional events Mm. um so one of the things we um try to um help people forget is by exposing them to their fears um Mm. but letting them understand that it's a safe environment for Mm. example virtual reality Mm. is probably going to be very big Mm. now Mm. and then eventually the person learns to sort of dissociate that or understand that um um, approaching these fearful objects or situations won't kill them. Or mm. you know, yeah. uh, can you give a, an example of how virtual reality might work, or what? Yeah, so a um, lot of post-traumatic stress disorder is one of the biggest. Um, causes of anxiety disorders. Now actually it has its own category because it's so big. Um, so in and biggest cause of the post-traumatic stress disorder is often car accidents. So you can have a virtual reality. This is something that I'm thinking of. People haven't quite done this yet, mm-hmm. but phobias they've done. Like, so if you're super scared of spiders, spiders yeah, yeah, they have their, you know, they have um, the VR equipment on their heads, and then in the um, they see that their hand is like interacting with cockroaches when they're not, or spy, spiders when they're so not. Even, <laughs> even you saying that makes me anxious. That's how scared <laughs> I am of spiders. What, what's v, uh, VR equipment? Oh, sorry, VR virtual reality. Yeah, sorry, um, and so. But yeah, with a car accident, you can have the virtual reality headset, a printed that that you're driving if you're mm. scared of driving mm. because of you had this accident. So that would be wouldn't that would be part of an extension of what we kind of current theory is to use a thing called cognitive behaviour therapy. Yes. And in cognitive behaviour therapy, one of the things is exposure. But now exposure is at the next level of <laughs> virtual reality, which yes. is. Which is quite amazing. Yeah, we live in that. We are very lucky to live in this um, time. And so exposure therapy is what we look at. And one of my biggest discoveries was that if exposure therapy happens really early in life, before you have have like large um, navigational skills, so say seven or eight years of age is when we can really remember big maps. That's when you can go home by yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. You know, some kids are smarter, obviously. Um, but um, yeah, so before that age, it seems like if you give them exposure therapy, the fear is quite permanently reduced compared to when you give exposure therapy later. And then the second biggest discovery of my life came that when we apply the same principle during adolescence, actually adolescents are worse off than adults in remembering exposure therapy. So they forget to forget is what we say. (laughs) So you're saying if you use exposure therapy in adolescence, that's not as effective as exposure therapy in adults, is that right? Yes. Right. So is this with adolescents in car accidents and so forth, like a clinical population or is it a... Yes, clinical population. Right. Yeah, that's the... um, And I was first to actually model that in animals as well as humans, but um, to showed oh that was really the case because um the brain differences during adolescence with the onset of puberty and so on um the brain changes drastically and that seems to um prevent them from actually forgetting especially the emotional component of the experience that is fascinating <laughs> yeah that wow. is, so, so 
that would explain so many, um, I guess, developmental mm. attributes of adolescence that it's very hard for them to forget stuff. Yeah, because yeah. we recently even replicated this finding with drug addiction. So, so um, same exposure therapy principles happen with um, in rehab, for example. Mm. So um, you are exposed to things that remind you of getting high, like syringes or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, mm. I think the most effective would be actually your friends that you do drugs yeah. with. They're yeah. very strong cues. And then eventually you want that emotional association to decrease so you get reduced craving when you see these cues. For example, we know that like I'm addicted to coffee. So if I see a coffee brand, then I get this craving. So that's what we're trying to reduce by reducing the emotional association by exposing to those cues, but not giving them any drugs. But it turned out when we do these exposure therapies in adolescence, um, it relapses way at, at a greater rate than in adulthood. And that explains why sometimes it's hard to forget your first love. That's why. Oh, <laughs> oh, now I've me. got it. <laughs> Assuming you first fell in love when you're an adolescent. Yes, I guess. yes. <laughs> but we mostly do fall in love with adolescents. Is there a... Um, we do. We do. Is, that, is, that is just mind-blowing. Yeah. So do you reckon there is some... Um, evolutionary reason for that 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 period of time that yeah we just can't forget stuff i think um there's a lot of research showing that positive emotions are really bad for decision making (laughs) you know you feel confident and invincible so you may make rash decisions for example and this is why bipolar the many phase can be very dangerous as well as the depressive phase because um being sad may 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 uh, make you better decisions, um, make th- better decisions, but then you your decision tend to be quite sad. <laughs> mm. um, so th- there's we speculate the reason this is the case during adolescence is so that the body um, reproduces. Mm. When, so when you're not emotional and calm and collected and yeah. make really good decisions, yeah. um, maybe you'll never reproduce. <laughs> Rationally, children, they're blessings, they're beautiful, but, you know, there's a lot of sacrifice involved. Mm, mm. So I think um, we temporarily do go crazy during adolescence so that you reproduce. It makes perfect sense to me. <laughs> oh, you're such a killjoy. Uh, <laughs> um, but you do remind me of an obstetrician who told me when I was a medical student that um, that <laughs> if a, a woman recalled how painful her first birth was, We'd, uh, women would only have one child because yeah. it is so painful and so distressing. For, yeah. for, not for everybody, obviously. Um, but um, it's good that you forget how, how difficult it is. Well, you know, after birth, there are all these, you know, chemicals that are released into the brain and one of them is endogenous opioids. So the same thing as heroin, just it's, yeah. you make it in your brain yourself. And that is a huge cause of forgetting biologically. Really? So your body literally makes you forget after you give birth. <laughs> <laughs> what, do you know much about oxytocin? Because I know that gets released during breastfeeding. Yeah, we feeding. study oxytocin as well, yeah. What, what does that do for memory and um, Oxytocin, it really, uh, it's very, very controversial, all the research out there, especially in humans, because if you ingest it, it doesn't really cross the blood-brain barrier, so no. it doesn't necessarily get to the brain. So Don't I think snort it? Is that how yeah, that so the best way is the intranasal yeah. delivery, mm. um, snorting it, and um, it. Some people argue that it is good for forgetting um, negative emotions, oh. but some people do argue that um, it's it's not. So the research is a bit divided. It's definitely not a cure-all is mm. my experience with it. Do you know what, <laughs> oxytocin for me was when, it, when the research started coming out maybe 10 years ago, mm. it was ta- it was this kind of miracle, this, this drug. It's, it was the love hormone. Mm. It was going to be useful for everything. It was a feel-good endogenous chemical. And then 
then it's like you know, uh, you know, the the cracks start to appear, and maybe yeah. it's not so great. It's that that old saying about you better use the new drugs before they stop working. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, Tell us about some of your other researches because this is just this is just <laughs> blowing me away. Well, so the biological reason as to why the adolescence is such an emotional period, or or when you actually look at um, people as well as animals, it's like they're not. It's not that they are more emotional in general. It's just that their emotional memory seems to be stronger, um, and they are harder to forget in adolescence. And partly we discovered is because this brain region that sort of makes people different from other species is that we have a very enlarged region called the prefrontal cortex um, and other animals don't and this region is responsible for sort of self-control inhibiting you know yourself right. and even when you want to be animalistic or hit on everybody knowing that you shouldn't mm-hmm. <laughs> or when you want to pick fights or be violent knowing mm-hmm. that you shouldn't sort mm-hmm. of thing and that region is very very large in humans and that makes sense because other animals they are you know they are feral they do mm-hmm. do tend Impulse. to do what they want but that region um, go through a weird transition during adolescence that it sort of reduces in function so <laughs> so you make decisions quicker you're less inhibited really? and yep yep <laughs> and you know what adolescence is actually um, not you know 12 to 18 it's actually like 13 to 30 <laughs> So I was only an adolescent about five years ago. <laughs> That's what I tell my students. <laughs> and some of us never grow up. But um, but it's, it's true that if you look at the brain trajectory, um, especially how neurons communicate to each other, um, our brain only sort of stabilizes at about 30 years of age. Mm. And I think that's um, one of the most recent things we've found out in neuroscience. Yeah, and that makes a lot of sense, right? We do a lot of silly things when we're 20s as well. So there's a, biolo- there's a biological reason for it. It's not yes. just because we're socialised to believe that, but our brain is actually making doesn't have the capacity to control impulses as well as when we're older. Yes, or even when we're younger. But, but, but what sometimes about? children can be even better. Really, before puberty, yes. Well, that's what the brain data shows, as well as behavioural data. <laughs> so, is that processing experience? So, for example, being silly behaviour, and you learn from it, mm-hmm. so you can retain it more after thirty. That's because that's the function of that particular area of the brain. Um, so, that particular area of the brain sort of can dampen our emotions. And how we remember and how we feel at the time have a very strong relationship. The more emotional that we tend to be um, at the with the experience, the more likely you remember because emotion yes. sort of increases, you know, um, blood flow and all these other things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> uh, is, it, is it known if um, autism spectrum disorders have any effect on that uh, brain maturation? You said that the mm. brain matures by the age of thirty. What about if we have a child at, say, 9, 10, 11 who's manifesting behavioural features of autism spectrum disorders? So there are definitely subtle differences with um, pathology that's developmental, Mm. especially autism as well as um, schizophrenia is quite developmental as well, especially in boys um, Mm. with manifesting adolescence. There are subtle differences, but the general pattern of this sort of reduced prefrontal function in adolescence seem to be ubiquitous until Mm. it stabilises at very late 20s Mm. and early 30s, yeah. Freud speculated (laughs) this thing called the superego, which we now neurobiologically call 
the prefrontal cortex. Yes, he said, <laughs> that is the super ego. It's a super ego, man. And he said that uh, I'm getting I'm getting these 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 derisive looks from, from Professor Gonzalez over there. Well, a, lo- a lot of neuropathologists have spent a lot of time looking at different uh, areas of the cortex to see if they can find differences uh, f- from one part to the other. There are, there are certain differences in mm. in thicknesses of cortex, but there's you can't find a significant difference. Did mm. you find the super ego whilst you were no. pulling around? <laughs> no. But in Alzheimer's or and definitely frontotemporal dementia and some vascular dementia, one of the first areas to be really affected is the prefrontal cortex, sure, right? That's, that's right. why one of the symptoms of dementia is this bit of personality change. Mm. Uh, more impulsive, less, yeah, uh, yeah. more disinhibited. Oh. Yeah, more angry. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that's also the area speculatively that alcohol is supposed to affect as well, Definitely. prefrontal cortex. Yes, yes, more as well. Yeah, things. yeah, and you pick fights and you become more anxious as well because we try to always regulate our fear in a way and that's sort of impaired and that's why adolescence is a rough period <laughs> Gee, we've got to get you back on the show because there's so much to discuss we could fill hours with this kind of uh, research and, and the implications you know, from a social, biological, psychological yes. point of view. So please, do I have your undertaking on air that you're going to come back on the show? I'll come back. Fantastic! Because <laughs> it was the best show she's been on yet. That's right. <laughs> Thank you so much Dr. Ji-hun Kim, uh, who is the uh, director or the lead. Should I say the lead or is it director? I'm director, head of laboratory. Director, yeah. head, lead. Sheep is just psychobiology lab at uh, the Flora Institute. <laughs> professor, the Chilean professor, I'm going to start calling you, Michael. <laughs> you are a neuropathologist at the Royal Melbourne Hospital. Um, you're not the go-to man. You're one of the go-to men is what you're telling me because you're so humble. When it comes to yes, well, um, <clears throat> most of the the work that's done on um, the diagnosis, the pathological diagnosis of um, mm-hmm. various diseases that underlie dementia, mm-hmm. is done at the NHMRC Brain Bank, which is oh. run by my colleague Katrina McLean at the Alfred Hospital. I and this know is her. this is housed at um, the Florian, the oh. Kenneth Meyer Institute, oh. and um, the Brain Bank receives brains that are donated by relatives of. of individuals that die with dementia yeah and they're also control brains normal brains that are yep. donated um and so that's how the data on the pathology of these conditions is built up and you work there no i don't work there oh. I, I work across the road at the royal melbourne hospital so my involvement is you know we occasionally have small brain biopsies from patients that the clinicians suspect have some form of dementia and they want sometimes want that clarified but hang, hang on can i just stop you there for one second so brain biopsies that is whilst the patient's alive mm. so you People can have a bit of their brain biopsied mm. and still function That's normally correct. afterwards. Yes. It's oh. taken from what's called an, a non-dominant frontal hemisphere. Right. That's uh, on psychological (laughs) testing, which is done before the the procedure, um, the conclusion is reached that this this is not going to adversely affect them. And then they send that bit of tissue to you and you say Mm. this is or isn't. uh, We process that, make some slides, put that under the microscope and look for the the various changes that form the basis of the diagnosis. Is that common? I mean... Uh, It's becoming less common because there are, I mean... Dementia is not not a pathological diagnosis. So what what pathologists look for are changes in the brain tissue that underlie conditions like Alzheimer's disease, frontotemporal lobe degeneration, Lewy body dementia and so on. And so what we look for are these changes microscopically. uh, And if you find... These, these changes, you can come to the conclusion that such and such a disease like Alzheimer's oh, is likely. Oh, right. But the, 
the, the, the real the, the, a, a very accurate diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease is really obviously established in a post-mortem brain, and mm. that's where the work of the brain bank comes mm. in. Mm-hmm. And there are various, um, and the reason for that is there are various uh, numerical criteria, the numbers of individual changes like plaques, what are called neurofibrillary tangles and, and amyloid. These are all things you see when you look down a microscope. Look yep. down the microscope, yeah. that's what you see. And so there are, there are, there are essentially two systems, the, the CERAD system and the BRAC system, um, that you, you must satisfy those criteria and, and the numbers of these particular features is related to the patient's age. So right. the older you are, the more of the oh, changes right, you're allowed right, to have. Right, right. The younger you are, the less numbers of changes you're allowed to have. Right. But, and, but certainly both of those systems uh, require the um, examination of at least six uh, areas of, of that ribbon of grey matter on the surface of the brain, the, the cortex, right. six areas of cortex to be examined so when before you, you can make the diagnosis. When you look down... Let me just um, get this right in my own head. So dementia is a clinical diagnosis mm. that it is made um, by uh, the doctor mm. sitting opposite the patient who she takes a history, does an examination and says, okay, your memory isn't functioning as well, you've got some perceptual problems um, and so forth. Then there are the cause of that might be a whole lot of different types mm. of pathologies mm. of dementias. Mm. One of which is Alzheimer's. Though, as G mentioned, there are, there are some yep. um, forms of dementia that have sp- particular features, like the, the, the frontotemporal lobe degeneration conditions where there's uh, semantic problems with language, um, behavioural abnormalities, mm. um, whereas other cognitive functions are not, not so prominent as mm. they are in, in Alzheimer's disease. So the cognition can get a, a fair yep. idea that this is, this is a certain... Type. Type of dementia. Yeah. The other condition, uh, Lewy body disease, where you get pr- profound forgetfulness. Mm. Yeah. Um, uh, and then the other issue is, um, it, it, Nurse EpiPen mentioned before, um, the vascular dementias, mm. they, that's a sort of a slowly progressive um, form of dementia and, and the pattern of it sort of suggests that that, that is, is the, the pathology underlying the dementia. Mm. So why, I mean, when you... What, I mean, what's your role as a neuropathologist in the dementias? Well, to provide the clinicians with um, evidence, you know, usually microscopic, that 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 the pathology supports what their clinical di- what 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 their most likely clinical diagnosis yeah. is. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So if they if they think this is Alzheimer's disease, the patient is say sixty five, mm. and I look down the microscope and I see lots and lots and lots of things. These things called plaques and. Mm-hmm. This other um, change called neurofibrillary mm. tangles and, and, and presence of amyloid, and we have sort of special staining techniques that we can we can use to, to find these things. Mm. So if I find enough of these to satisfy those criteria, even though I'm only looking at a very small part of the brain, I, I will put in my report. This is this is very likely to be Alzheimer's disease. And as you mentioned before, um, a, a very small percentage of people would be getting a brain biopsy because mostly the diagnosis is done clinically and radiographically with yes. MRI scanners and so forth. Yeah, there is, there is a scan called a Pittsburgh scan, um, a Pittsburgh scan, which is a, a form of a PET scan where you can use a particular isotope that attaches to the amyloid that's deposited in the brain. And so if certain parts of the brain light up mm. with that scan, you can say, well, this is very likely to be Alzheimer's disease. Really? Mm. Fascinating. Um, so we know there are different types of dementias and we know they have different prognoses, specifically with, with and different causes. Specifically with Alzheimer's, are we any closer to figuring out what the cause is? 
Well, there are essentially there are, there are three forms of Alzheimer's. One of the sporadic, uh, which is the the commonest, um, it just happens. Just happens. Yeah. Um, then there's uh, so-called early onset familial, which is mm. due to mutations in at, le- at least three genes. There may be more, but there are three genes, and those mutations are thought to contribute to the formation of a protein called the A beta protein, right. which. Um, then is assimilated into the, into amyloid, so that that causes the amyloid component of, of, the, of the disease. Right. Um, and then there's early onset non familial, which again is probably due to a spontaneous mutation. Right. And the most common though is sporadic. Most common is right. sporadic. Yes. So, so these, these, that comes on usually after the age of sixty five, where the earlier onset ones, the particularly the the, the early onset familial, can be as young as thirty, mid thirties. Um, and then the the early onset non-familial is usually between 50 and 60. Yeah. And as you were saying before, amyloid plaques, that protein type of plaque, mm. is pathognomonic or very specific to uh, Alzheimer's? Um, if it contains this, this uh, particular protein called the A-beta protein, right. and we use things called monoclonal antibodies, which we can apply to tissue sections. And if that monoclonal antibody is taken up in these structures called plaques, then yeah. we can say, well, this is mm. this is likely to be Alzheimer's disease. And why? I mean, why why does the cell produce amyloid? Um, the A beta protein uh, is derived from a larger protein, which normally resides in the cell membrane, called the amyloid precursor protein, mm-hmm. and. That amyloid precursor protein norm- is normally broken down, and there are I- into the A beta protein and some other proteins. And yeah. there are you, there are mechanisms in the in the normal brain to get rid of that protein. Mm-hmm. So one of the issues that happens in um, Alzheimer's disease is, th- is that this protein aggregates. And um, Ashley Bush uh, at University of Melbourne and also the Mental Health Research Institute um, <laughs> found out uh, did some great research some years ago to show that if you look, if you analyse uh, the plaques, they have a high content of zinc and copper and iron, particularly copper and, and zinc. Right. And so that has something to, that was, he postulated this had something to do with the assimilation of, of amyloid. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and also in, in experimental work, you can show that um, ionic zinc, like zinc ions iron mm-hmm. and, and um, copper ions, lead to the increased assimilation of the, this A-beta protein into amyloid. So once it's assimilated into amyloid, the brain can't get rid of it. Those not natural mechanisms to get rid of it break down. And so these, these metals, wow. copper, zinc and iron, are thought to have something to do with, with that, that assimilation of, of the A-beta protein into amyloid. And so... Ashley has sort of postulated that, well, if we can get some treatments to prevent this interaction between the ions and, and the A-beta protein, maybe we will prevent the, the amyloid from being formed. And there is some evidence from, from his, his animal studies that that, that can happen. Hmm. Ashley is from the Flory um, Institute of Neuroscience Mental Health, a couple of floors above me, and we sometimes do things together mm. um, because of memory. Mm. And um, he and his team are um, having a large clinical trial, so I, I really recommend people to check out the Flory website mm. and participate. Um, they just opened a centre for research excellence with a large government grant to look at these mechanisms yeah, in people, so I really encourage people to go for it. Mm. <laughs> so, uh, I th- is that called chelating therapy where you... Um, chelating therapy was um, first used uh, to try and get rid of zinc. That's right, yeah. Um, um, 
but I'm, I'm not sure if actually he's using chelating agents uh, no, in, in these later so. studies. No, I don't yeah. think so. We should, <laughs> no. we should get him on the show. Yeah, you should. Yeah. Yeah. He's really funny. That's <laughs> <laughs> well, a, a prerequisite for our show. Extremely bright person. Do you know one of the the great ironies of irony? Or is it, yeah, it's an irony. I guess. Well, the rusty brain. I'm, I'm, a, I'm getting a bit rusty. Done irony. <laughs> the rusty. I'm getting a bit rusty. Irony. Was it Louis Louis Alzheimer died of amyloidosis? Body disease. No, but you know, Louis Alzheimer, the oh, guy uh, that described... Oh, Alois Alzheimer, yes. Uh, Alois Alzheimer. Well, Alois Alzheimer, he sort of reflects uh, the way neuropathology developed in Europe. Yeah. Neuropathology was usually practised by psychiatrists in, in mm. the Psychiatry Institute, you know, mm. examining the brains of, Didn't of know their, that. Of their, their mental, mentally ill patients. And uh, Alzheimer worked uh, in an a, uh, institute for... The, it was called the Institute for the Insane and Epileptic mm. in um, Frankfurt, mm. and he then moved, moved to Munich. But... Um, he f- he was the first to describe these changes in the brain in one in one of his patients that he examined, and thus it was named after him. Uh, eventually, but um, there's a fascinating story about Alzheimer in that um, he was presenting his findings at a meeting uh, in Tübingen, um, and um, mm. so he presented these fantastic findings, and there was no questions asked, no discussion afterwards. And he was sort of quite dumbfounded by this, but it turns out that the the very next talk was on um, compulsive masturbation. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so they all wanted that. It was obvious, you know, why there was less interest in Alzheimer's talk. <laughs> Oh, fantastic stuff. The things you learn on radiotherapy. See, that's, see, that's going to stick in my brain. Mm. Stick in your brain. What was the findings of the <laughs> masturbation? Oh, no. Oh, that, that is absolutely wonderful. Uh, but what I was going to say was a friend was telling me that Louis Alzheimer? Mm, Alois. Alois mm. um, died from amyloidosis. That's right. Which um, is, a, is a, a global depositing of amyloid yeah, across the body. Uh, uh, amyloid it's, it means that it, it occurs because the protein that make, there are various different proteins that make up different yeah. amyloids in various parts of the body and uh, amyloid is formed because of the ver- a very tight um, folding of the, of the protein um, and then it's deposited in the tissues um, and as I said the, the amyloid in the brain is is the, the major protein is this A beta protein mm. and that happens in the brain in pe- uh, with people with Alzheimer's but mm. global amyloidosis or general amyloidosis happens global amyloidosis is um, can be due to can be can be secondary to chronic inflammatory diseases. Oh, right. Can be due to, um, to proliferations of what are called plasma cells in in the body. You know, multiple myeloma is a, is a condition that causes that. See what happens um, when you speak to pathologists. You get yeah, this wealth of information in, in, the, in the heart. Cardiac amyloidosis. Is I'm going to have to stop you right there, <laughs> professore. <laughs> He just knows so much. Um, thank you so much, Professor. Uh, thank you to uh, Dr. G for coming in. We're going to get uh, both you guys back in. You have been listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. For more podcasts, information about upcoming events and our live stream, please visit our website at rrr.org.au. 